Hello class, welcome to True Crime University. This is your Professor Debbie. Well, here it is. This is the big case that I told you so I've been working on for a while. And I knew there was gonna be a documentary or miniseries or something about it. And I think it starts on June 15th or July 15th. I know it's on that Peacock channel. I don't know where else it is, but I saw the trailer for it and it looks pretty good. So I thought this looks like an interesting case. And like I said, I've, I've been working on it for a while. And this case broke two records for me. It's been the, the one I've worked on for the longest. It's the most complicated just due to the vast amount of information there is on it because it is a recent case. And there's so many facts and things to put together. It was like one of those giant five million piece jigsaw puzzles and it, it was real complicated and it took me a long time so this is going to be multiple parts there is because we're talking about a surgeon obviously there's going to be a lot of medical terminology and i've looked up in case i don't already know it what the terms are and in order for you to truly understand this case and the depravity of our subject you have to understand the medical side of it so that's why it's so important that i explain as clearly and simply as i can the medical terms and the other record this one broke is somebody asked me at the question and answer session who's my least favorite serial killer and it's this motherfucker right here because i have never read about such an evil depraved, malicious piece of shit excuse for a human being as this dude right here. And I'll warn you right off the bat, I'm going to swear a lot. I have a lot of names for him that I've come up with, and you know me and my potty mouth, so you can imagine what they are. Just warning you. So here's my usual disclaimer. All of the information I present is available to the public and any sound clips are from news or court, which are also public. The purpose of this podcast is for information and education. I mean no disrespect to anybody, especially victims or their families. I in no way intend to glorify criminals. And I talk about psychology, but I can't diagnose anybody. I have no credentials. So therefore, when I pretend to diagnose people, it's just speculation. Uh, just to give you a brief summary and why this case is so monumental. And it is actually, in the American judicial system, it is monumental. It's the first time that a medical professional has been found guilty of crime in a criminal court and, and put in prison. Now, we hear all the time, unfortunately, about doctors and hospitals and dentists, you know, whoever it is, medical professionals going to court but it's usually civil court. But this is the first time that a doctor, in this case a surgeon, has ever been found criminally responsible. And once you hear about what he did, you will uh, I hopefully agree. Now, while we're on the topic of warnings before we get into this, it's too bad that we don't have a virtual classroom and I had a blackboard. You know how a Shakespeare play at the beginning, they have like cast of characters and they'll list everybody and what they are. And there's, for some reason, there's always a clown. I don't understand it. 
It'll be like, you know, king, queen, prince, blah, 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 clown. It's like, why is there a clown in here? Sorry. Um, this case needs a list of characters because there are so many people in this story. It's going to be hard to keep track of them. Between the victims, who are all patients, um, there's a lot of doctors involved. There are other bad guys who would be like administrators and such. There are friends of the uh, doctor and he's got co-workers. We're gonna hear quotes from people who work with them. Um, there's a lot of people to keep track of, but I will do my best to make it easy for you. And in case we, you know, every once in a while I'll mention, remind you who who exactly we're talking about. So, Christopher Daniel Dunch was born on April 3rd, 1971 in Montana. He was the oldest of four. He had two brothers and a sister. His dad, Donald, was, this is an unusual combination, a missionary and a physical therapist. His mother, Susan, was a teacher. He was said to have um, a comfortable life, meaning, you know, financially, but he wasn't, like, really rich. He went to a private high school called Evangelical Christian School, and this would be in Cordova, which was a suburb of Memphis, Tennessee. He actually, although he was born in Montana, he spent most of his childhood in the Memphis area. So he goes to a private high school, and most of the kids there are richer than him. They're, you know, little preppy brats whose dads are senators and surgeons and, and such. He had friends in school. There was nothing really unusual or bizarre about him or his behavior. He was known as a star football player in high school, and he wanted to play football in college. He was real into athletics, sports, and um, he did weightlifting and wrestling, and he was, you know, the type of dude that's always into working out and his physique and being muscular and competitive. Everybody said about how competitive he was, and you'll hear the following words used to describe him in high school. Or college. Smart, athletic, driven, which are all good combinations if you're going to be a doctor because you have to be smart, obviously, and, and it's a good thing to be driven. But he was also, like a lot of smart people are, extremely absent-minded. And unfortunately, he was said to have a, quote, volatile temper. Um, one of his friends noticed, or one of his friends who played football with him made an observation that they would do these. You have to excuse me. I don't know much about football. I don't know much about anything, any sport besides hockey. But apparently in football, they do these things called drills. And I guess I can kind of visualize what they are. It's some kind of physical challenge. And they would be doing these drills. And he would somehow always screw them up. And he would get really, really mad at himself. And everybody else would be done practicing in, in the locker room or whatever, and old Chris would still be there hopping in the tires or whatever it is that you do during a drill, getting really frustrated that he couldn't figure this out. And he would pester, like get on people's nerves, his coach. And he'd be like, what am I doing wrong? Would you please help me? 
and his other teammates, he'd be like, why can't I get this? How, how do I keep fucking this up? Would you please show me what I'm doing wrong? And he would literally drive everybody else nuts with this type of, I guess you would call it an obsession. And, and that is, you know, obsession is the thought, compulsion is the behavior. I guess that would be obsessive compulsive behavior or an example of that. Like he wanted to be perfect at whatever he did, whether it was football or academics or whatever. And you would hope that this will be a good thing in somebody who wants to be a doctor, right? Well, I don't know where he goes wrong here, but he does, obviously, or we won't be talking about him. So what he wants to do is play college football. So he went to a small college in Mississippi, like just purposely to play football. And that didn't work out. So then he went to Colorado. I don't know what college, but supposedly this school had a better team. I don't really know how well he did at football there, but he was a linebacker. And there's a place, I've seen pictures of it, it looks really cool. It's called Red Rocks Amphitheater. And it's a natural formation. It's like, um, well, big red rocks in the desert and they made it into like a theater and bands and, and stuff play outside at night and it, it looks really cool but anyway he worked at this place as a security guard and he bragged to his one friend that worked with him i guess they were having a conversation about you know what would we do if a fight broke out here or you know how would we control the crowd or what would we do and chris was like um well, I'm a really good wrestler, so that would be no problem for me, breaking up fights. And everybody said about how arrogant he always was, and he would always brag about stuff. He was great at wrestling, he was great at football. Later on, you'll see him brag about other stuff. And this really rubbed people the wrong way because nobody likes a braggart. And this story is pretty funny, but it's real typical of his personality. It, it says a lot about him. Um, I don't know if he was in high school or college, but he was on the phone with a friend and he was bragging about what a good wrestler he was. And the friend said, dude, you're a terrible wrestler. So Chris hangs up the phone and the friend's just like, oh, well, okay, hung up with me, whatever. So I don't know how close he lived, but like a minute later, there's a knock on his door. Chris is standing at his door and he's like, come on out here, we're wrestling. And the friend's like, are you serious? Like, you really came to my house just to wrestle me to prove that you can wrestle? Like, what the fuck's wrong with you? You know, so they wrestle and Chris lost really fast because he's not a good wrestler. And I like that story because not only is it funny, but it shows you how childish he is. And you're going to notice throughout this whole story that he never really grows up, unfortunately. And a lot of people, they say, are especially autistic people, that we have like a childlike quality or, or we never really grow up. But it's, and a lot of people said to be charming or cute or whatever. But in him, it was definitely not cute. And there was nothing funny or charming or endearing about his childishness. It was just downright stupid and embarrassing. And the things that he did later on were dangerous, were, were just not cute or funny. So 
And this is a character that we are going to come back to later. His name is Jerry Summers, and he was a high school friend of Chris's. He played football with him. Jerry was a big dude. He was gregarious and friendly, a loyal friend, and he actually jumped into a fight that his friend Chris got in one time and I guess found he was in over his head, and Jerry jumps in in the fight to help him out. So after high school, he goes to college at Memphis State, and he was supposedly devastated because he was no longer eligible to play football. I don't know if he was too old or, or what the situation was, but his football days were over, and he had to concentrate on something that was, like, realistic. So he picked medicine. His roommate was a friend named Cooper, and he he will be friends with him for quite a while. And his friend, remember, he, he wanted to be a doctor. And his friends used to joke and tell him, oh, if I'm ever in the hospital, you're not working on me. And okay, that's, I guess that's funny then, but later on, it's you'll see that it's definitely not funny. He had a real bad sense of direction, and he was always getting lost. He couldn't balance a checkbook, which is, I mean, I could do that shit when I was like 17 or something. And, I mean, he wants to be a doctor and he can't figure this out. It's a little bit disturbing. But because he was always getting lost, instead of maybe learning directions or whatever, he had people chauffeur him around. And I don't know how he did this, but he had this, like, entourage of friends that, like, babysat him. Or they would, I guess, enable is a good word. Stuff that he he couldn't do. I mean, because we're talking about a grown-ass man at this point. Like, you know, balance his checkbook or drive or whatever. He always had somebody around to do it for him, which is very disturbing. In 1995, he enrolled at the University of Tennessee Medical School. And he was not only in the, the MD program, you know, to be a physician, but he was in the MD PhD program, which I'm sure you know what that is. That's like his PhD was in molecular biology. So he's really in deep with this academic commitment. While he was in medical school, he also worked in a lab and he actually oversaw two labs. He was appointed the program director of the school's tissue bank, and he reportedly finished at least five years of surgical residency, which if you want to be a surgeon, you have to go to school longer, and you have to do like X amount of operations before you can finish or graduate or whatever. He joined the Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Medical Society and things like that. We had some of those where I went to college. Like an, there is an honor biology, and they don't just let you in. You have to actually have be able to prove that you have good grades. And I never had good enough grades to get into any of these such societies. But I know that you have to have good grades. So apparently, he did have the academic acumen to, uh, or what they call book smarts, you know, to, to get by or to graduate from medical school. But in his fourth year of surgery residency, one of the administrators got an anonymous phone call that accused him of using cocaine right before he did surgery. And I have a little audio clip here of a 
friend of his who's anonymous. She's been interviewed by a reporter. They have a like a black thing over her face, so you can't tell who she is. But she gave a deposition about what he did, you know, how he would use substances before his rounds, and here's uh, what she has to say. Um, there's been LSD, there has been cocaine, there has been pills. Videotape deposition from one of Dunch's former friends in a civil suit points to his downward spiral. How long did this party, this drug party, go on that night? All night to the next day. Okay. Till the sun came up? Well beyond the sun came up because Chris had to go to work the next day. And he went. Okay, so you heard her say that she was there when he had an all-night drug party and put on his coat, lab coat, and went to do rounds. And, I mean, this is just astounding. Can you imagine you're a patient in a hospital and the doctors come in to do their rounds and one of them is tripping balls and Look at the pictures of him that I have in my social media. There's, I have quite a few pictures, and there's a couple of his, um, like, booking photos, and there's other ones of him, but you'll know which one I'm talking about, because he looks high as fuck. His eyes are just like, you. I mean, you can tell by looking at him. And she says in the deposition that he does pills, and from what I found, the kind of pills we're talking about were Lortab, which I don't think they make anymore, but it was a pain uh, for, for pain. Like not, and I don't mean like Tylenol or ibuprofen. I mean like st- something that you shouldn't be taking and then doing rounds or doing surgery. He would take um, either Oxycontin or Oxycodone, which is also a an opioid pain pill, and Adderall and Ritalin, which are both stimulants. All of, all of this shit together. And I just can't even imagine being able to function on such a concoction, let alone, well, I was, I was going to say I don't know how he did surgery, but we do know how he did surgery. Shitty. Now, while he was in medical school, you know, he was doing the, the dual PhD. Um, he worked in labs and he did research. Supposedly, he spent more time in the lab than the operating room, and he wanted to be a researcher more than a, um, a surgeon. And I've read more than one place where he used surgery to, quote, fall back on when he couldn't be as successful with his research. Now, he, at the same time, worked with two separate startup labs, and that would be like medical research labs that later on became, well, later on became, you know, companies, and I'll tell you more about them. But he had a friend that worked with him in the lab named Rand Page, and I, th- I think maybe Rand, this guy was an investor in one of the, uh, the startups, but he said that Chris had a very aggressive personality, and his business partners at one point decided that he was a problem. Whenever they would have a meeting in the morning, you know how most people have their coffee at their business meetings. Me, it was when I started my day at work, it was always Coke, but, well, he started his day with Coke too, I think, but we're talking the kind you snort. Well, his drink of, of choice for these meetings was vodka and orange juice. 
and he supposedly, throughout his career, kept a big-ass bottle of vodka under his desk. And this Rand said, quote, I confronted him several times, end quote. And he said that one time he was at one time he saw a mirror with cocaine on it with a dollar bill beside it on his desk. And if, if you don't know what the dollar bill is, um, it's you roll it up and you snort the cocaine with it. So this Rand, who was also a doctor, he discovered that his friend Chris had been using his name to write prescriptions for the, the drugs I mentioned that, that he shouldn't be taking. And I'll tell you about these companies that he was in. The first one was called Discgenics. It's all one word. D-I-S-C-G-E-N-I-C-S. And what they did, and they're still in operation, but they have, obviously they have all different people. They're in Utah now. And there's a guy named Dr. Kevin Foley, who currently is the chief medical officer and director of Discgenics in Utah. He was Chris's supervisor when he did a fellowship when he was in medical school. And Dysgenics is, this is right from their website, quote, a biopharmaceutical company focused on developing regenerative cell-based therapies that alleviate pain and restore function in patients with degenerative diseases of the spine, end quote. So what this technology was, they used stem cells, if, if you don't know, those are, those are, those are the, they're called stem cells because they can develop into anything, and not anything like a car or something, but a body part. And Chris, when he was in, worked in this lab, he worked with two Russian scientists. They were a married couple, and their names were Valerie, that's the husband, Kukakov, and Tatiana Ignatova. And they patented this way to take stem cells and turn them into healthy disc cells. You know, the discs in your vertebrae, in your neck, down your spine. And discs are going to be something important in this uh, lesson because, for one thing, he (laughs) he has a habit of destroying them. But a lot of people, when they get back surgery or neck surgery, like his patients did, their discs or like I have some that are I don't know what's what's wrong with them. They're either they either have spurs, meaning they like bone growths that don't belong in there. They're herniated, meaning they're uh, the stuff inside them. See, discs are supposed to be like spongy. Like um, think of them as uh, shock absorbers in your spine and your neck, and they can turn bad and need replaced. And this is important to know because so that we understand when he screws up the surgeries what exactly it is that he does. So I actually looked at the patent and it filed on May 11th of 2008. It had the three of their names, the two Russians and Chris, for this technique that turns stem cells into disc material and it's still used by the Dysgenics company in Utah. They still use that to help people. In fact, my neck is messed up. I have degenerative disc disease in my neck. So theoretically, they might be able to help me if I went there and paid them a lot of money that I don't have. But I think you get the point. So 
What he did was, to nobody's uh, surprise, he hogged all the credit for this discovery. And Dr. Kukakov is quoted as saying, it wasn't his invention, it was the invention of me and my wife. Because we made all primary experiments, we discovered it, end quote. So the lab ended up going bankrupt. But like I said, they regenerated themselves, to, for lack of a better term, and they're, they're still in operation in Utah. And the other company that he was working on was called Novostem, and that also involves stem cells. And unfortunately, this would have been a good idea if it didn't uh, sink, but the theory behind this was using stem cells to cure cancer. Um, unfortunately, that company floundered. So if you look up his resume, and it's out there, it's 12 pages, and you, I mean, if you really read it, you're like, what? First of all, where did he find the time to do all these things? And I think a bunch of it is just exaggerated or just outright made up, like a fairy tale. Um, you know, he claims he did this and that, and it, it looks very impressive, but that's the key, is it looks impressive. It says he got all these awards. I got an award for this, award for that. I'm like, is that true? So I googled his name. I put Dr. Christopher Dunch awards, and the only award that came up, this is hysterical, was an award for the podcast done about him. You gotta listen to it. If you're interested in him at all, you have to listen to this podcast. It's by Wondery, and it's a long, I think it's like seven parts or something, and it's a lot better than mine, obviously. It's a professional, it's called Dr. Death, by the way. They have a, an investigative reporter, she interviews these actual, not him, of course, but the doctors and the patients and people, and it's like a professional production. That one awards but I couldn't find that he ever did. But he did actually get good recommendations. Dr. Foley, who I mentioned earlier that he worked with, he gave him a good recommendation. And there was a department chairman named Dr. John Robertson that he knew, worked under in medical school. And he said about Chris, quote, his work ethic, character, and ability to get along with others were beyond reproach, end quote. And it's like, excuse me, are we talking about the same person? But we'll talk more about later about his uh, psychology. But let's keep these things in mind. So before, right before he embarked on his career or his, um, in other words, crime spree in Texas, and all these crimes happened in Texas. Okay, I'm back. I had a break. Me and Nathan took a nap. Um, this case is such hard work. You have no idea. It's the biggest and, as of yet, most complicated case I've worked on. Hopefully, the next big case I do will be easier. But, oh my God, if this was my job, which it kind of is because I don't uh, do anything else, I would ask for a raise, at least a donut or something. There's a lot of, and we'll talk about this later as we usually do, lessons that I want people to learn and the big one that should be screaming out to everybody is research your doctor, especially if it's a surgeon that's going to cut into you. And I was talking to my mom and she's had, she lost count, like four or five 
surgeries on her neck and back. And a lot of them are ones that these patients had. And fortunately for her, her neurosurgeon, he's an old dude. He's been around like forever. I don't even know if he's still practicing, but he's an excellent doctor. She trusts him. And I said, where'd you hear of him? And she said, well, her PCP, who of course she trusts, recommended him. And now this dude here, Dunch, he was new to Texas and literally nobody had heard of him when he started out. And he did some things that fooled people. And I'll, I'll talk to you about that later on. But uh, excuse my rambling. I'm just taking a break from this. Uh, and this is hard work. So we're going to meet a very important character in the story now. And this would be Wendy Young. I thought at first that they were married, but then I realized that no, they just, they have two kids together and they obviously live together for a time. So they met in 2011 in Memphis, like right before he moved to Texas. She was 27 and he was 40. They met at a place called The Beauty Shop and it's a bar restaurant. And I believe that, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, that it was a um, exotic dance club, and Wendy was a dancer. And she said she noticed him, like all dancers were kind of congregating around him because, you know, those types of places where, and not that I wouldn't know, because I've never been to anything like that, of course, but I hear stuff. And when you get somebody there with money, everybody wants this person's attention, of course, because they get tips. So I guess all the dancers were flocking around the dude that they knew was the doctor. And Wendy and him struck up a conversation. And she says, quote, he was friendly and we had good conversation. It's hard to find good conversation with a random person. We talked about marriage pretty quickly. We moved in together within three months and then I became pregnant, end quote. So they, their relationship progressed pretty fast. It was at this time that um, he's now called Dr. Dunch. His career officially began. He moved to Dallas and his first position was as a surgeon and he signed a services agreement with this company on May 24th of 2011. It was called Rim Lawy and Wands Minimally Invasive Spine Institute. And he was given an advance of $600,000. And this would be his yearly salary, according to this agreement, plus 40% of whatever revenue that he generated, which is an incredible amount of money to give somebody that is literally just out of medical school. And At this period of time, he was about half a million dollars in debt. And I guess I got to say in his defense, I don't know if that's too unusual for somebody who just got out of medical school because my student debt was obscene. And I can just imagine somebody who went through medical school and the surgical residency is even longer than normal medical school, plus all your malpractice insurance. So I don't honestly know if that is really that unreasonable of an amount of debt. Now, he doesn't make a good impression on his new employers. Dr. Rimlawi was suspicious of him, and he was quoted as saying, 
Something was wrong, whether it be impairment from drugs, alcohol, mental illness, or a combination of all three, end quote. So what he did was his very first surgery, like as a professional surgeon, it was on a Thursday, and he finished a surgery, and I didn't know this, but apparently when you're a surgeon and you do somebody and you do surgery on somebody, if you're not available in case the person has problems, you have to find a, what they call a call physician to be on call and available if you're going to go away somewhere in case your patient does have problems, which is a totally reasonable thing to ask of a surgeon, I think. So he finishes his surgery on Thursday. He hops on a plane to Vegas for, you know, just for fun without bothering to get a call physician. So something goes wrong and I, I don't have any details. I don't know what went wrong. Apparently it wasn't life-threatening, but they tried to call him. The hospital did. Couldn't reach him. So he, as soon as he comes back on Monday, they're like, that's it. You're fired. He work for these people, what, like, I don't know, a couple weeks or something, and he blows it like that. Um, not off to a very good start. So while he's doing this, in order to be a surgeon, you have to have OR privileges at a hospital. And he picked the hospital called Baylor, or Baylor Plano. It's called something different now. And Baylor Plano Hospital is sort of an other character in this story. And if we're looking at this as a fairy tale, um, they would be like a wicked witch or an ogre. I think you know what I'm alluding to here. So in the meantime, he starts his own company, and it's called Texas Neurological Institute. And he got the office space, and he's going to basically have his own practice and have patients referred to him and operate on his own patients. So remember I mentioned Jerry Summers, his childhood friend that he went to high school with. And he, he would be a good friend of his. So he hires Jerry to come down to Dallas and uh, basically kind of be like an assistant for him, like help him set up his practice, kind of do the, I guess, I don't know if I want to use the word grunt work, but stuff that's not medical, like buy stuff for the office, you know, whatever equipment an office needs, uh, put out advertisement about, hey, there's a new surgeon in town, you know, distribute this material to doctors and hospitals and so forth, like a, a business aid, stuff like that. Well, remember I told you that he also has a habit of not being able to take care of himself or, or be quite irresponsible. So it soon turns out that Jerry uh, also has the unofficial duty of cleaning up Chris's messes. Um, we know that he has this penchant for getting lost. One, apparently, one of the things he doesn't know how to do besides surgery is write a check, balance a checkbook, find his way around, drive. He wrecked numerous cars and what he would do was wreck a car and Jerry would go get it fixed. He was, was like his um, cleanup person, for lack of a better term. And another person that he hired, and I mean, he, he just opened a new medical business, so he needs somebody who's 
medically trained to help him with the medical aspect of thing with of things, of course. So gonna here comes another major character in this drama. He hires a nurse practitioner named Kimberly Morgan, and he hires her to help him with research. So Kimberly was supposedly attractive, and when they met, she would later admit that they had uh, like an instant attraction. Now, remember, he's living with Wendy, who is pregnant with his baby, but that doesn't stop him from uh, rolling around on his office couch with Kim. So, during her employment, Kim saw a lot of um, disturbing goings on. And she would say in a deposition later that, we kind of already knew this, he was in the habit of keeping a big bottle of vodka under his desk. And I guess she said something to him like, oh, you know, that's not a very good idea, or you shouldn't have that or something. And you know what he said? He goes, well, it's because I used to work with Russians. Like, what the fuck? Remember the, the two, the married scientists? the Russians that he worked with back at Discogenics. Like, and, and here's the, the, the psychopath and the criminal trait of blaming everything on somebody else's fault. Well, I work with, with Russians, so therefore that's why I drink vodka. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Another practice that he had was he would send Kim these intimate rambling emails and I've seen some of them and they look like they're written by somebody who's high. Uh, I, I don't know if he was when he wrote them or if he's just that bizarre, but it would be one of these emails that would in part lead to his undoing. We'll hear more about that later. We later learned that he told Wendy that Kim was his assistant, which she kind of was, she was also his, I guess, mistress, if you want to call it that. And he told Kim that Wendy was his secretary. So he's lying to everybody. And Kim said that, I mean, this is just bizarre. He said one of the things that he was famous for saying, this is like a famous quote, was, I, I don't know how I can say this with a straight face, quote, you can kiss my black ass while I'm watching black girl porn on my monitor, end quote. Don't ask me to explain that because I just can't. I mean, we're talking about somebody who um, just doesn't make sense in a, a lot of ways. I don't know if this quote was, he would just come out with it or if it was in response to, I don't know. I mean, I've been known to tell people kiss my Irish ass, but I mean, I just, okay, we're going to move on from that. This is making my head hurt. Now, Kim said later on that within a month of her starting work with Dr. Dunch that they were having sex, which, I mean, he saw that coming. And remember I mentioned the incident where he was working for the other two surgeons and he went to Vegas and didn't have an on-call person and there was a problem. Well, the surgeon who stepped in to take care of that patient, and he's going to be a major player in this case, so take note of him, Dr. Randall Kirby. He was a vascular surgeon, and if you don't know a vascular surgeon, they uh, take care of, like, blood vessels, 
like arteries, veins, lymph. It sounds really complicated. It sounds really hard. But anyway, Dr. Kirby was the one who came to the rescue. And he had met Dr. Dunch around. You know how you, I assume you're a surgeon and you would run into other surgeons. And he, like right off the bat, was wary of him. He said that his operating skills were not that good. And he's quoted as saying he could not wield a scalpel. Now, for the first few months that he was in Dallas, everybody at Baylor Hospital was satisfied or pleased with him. He was young and uh, you seemed to, seemed to be this, you know, young, hot, up-and-coming neurosurgeon. And one thing I've learned is when hospital administrators look at surgeons, especially neurosurgeons, they have dollar signs in their eyeballs, you know, like on cartoons. Because surgeons, especially in uh, the more lucrative specialties like neurosurgery, orthopedics, plastic surgery, they bring the hospital money. And he, he was quoted in a, mag a hospital magazine in September of 2011 on migraines. I'm just curious what he had to see. I, I have, I get migraines myself and I'm um, just curious, you know, how you just wonder about stuff. I mean, I, I just wonder if it was bullshit or if there's any truth at all to it. And in fact, the hospital magazine was considering putting his face in, I guess this would be the smelling professional version of him, not the um, high as fuck version of him on their billboards. But, you know, everything at some point has to go wrong or we won't be talking about him. Uh, we're going to end here, but the next couple episodes, I'm going to talk about his victims slash patients. And his very first one was November of 2011. And we're going to talk about the patient's as people, you know, introduce you to them, and maybe how they found them, uh, some things that they had to say, and the actual surgeries on them, and you're going to be horrified, or I, I, you should be, because for two reasons. One is what he did to these people. You're just going to, you won't believe. You'll be like, is this real? Did this really happen? And unfortunately, it did. And then when you hear what these poor people went through, oh my God, you're, I mean, it's so awful. And I mean, I, I know it's what all victims go through is sad, but the pain that he purposefully inflicts on these people, he's like um, one of those, like Dr. Mengele or where somebody from, you know, a concentration camp that would do experiments on people just to be cruel like i'm not even trying to be funny about that he literally is comparable to that type of mentality and um the next couple episodes are going to be disturbing i'm going to warn you but anyway that's what we're going to talk about the next couple episodes i want to get all the patients talked about uh, I want everybody to know exactly what it is that he did. So we're going to have a lot of medical terminology coming at you. And like I said, I'll do my best to simplify it for you so you can understand it. And I think I'll, my plan is anyway, the last episode is going to be 
his trial and the prosecution and what's happened to him in the meantime and the patients and all the major players in this case. You know, where they're, where is everybody now? So I will see you back here for next lesson.